courage. No, I'm not going to talk about the Super Bowl. Whichever team you're rooting for. Life shrinks or expands to, in proportion to one's courage. French author Anais Nin wrote these words in one of her famous diaries, volume three. And it's no surprise that she wrote them while the world was in turmoil in the chaos of World War II. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. These days I feel bombarded by information and chaos, and I wonder if opening the newspapers in the early 1940s, as Anais Nin would have, brought a similar onslaught of fear and uncertainty as all the alarming articles, posts, and text cross our eyes today. If alive, would Anais Nin make the same observation about herself and those around her, that life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage? We, along with our children and youth, are looking at the virtue of courage this month, February. It's no coincidence this month is Black History Month, the courage required to resist being enslaved, whether by ancient shackles or modern covert policies, is inspiring. It is American History Month. Telling our American history with honesty and integrity demands ongoing courage. So in order to expand beyond the confining versions of, that's in our history books, we have to set aside our fears of sharing the stage with other players besides those who wrote history. We have to share the stage with the history of Native Americans and blacks and women. As sociologist and critic of history textbooks, James Lowen, you've heard me quote him before, reminds us, so long as our textbooks hide from us the roles that people of color have played, in exploration from at least 6,000 B.C. to the 20th century. They encourage us to look at Europe and its extensions as the seat of all knowledge and intelligence. So long as they say, discover, they imply that whites are the only people who really matter, so long as they simply celebrate Columbus rather than teach both sides of his exploit. They encourage us to identify with white Western exploitation rather than study it. In some, U.S. history is no more violent and oppressive than history of England, Russia, Indonesia, Burundi, but neither is it exceptionally less violent. Having this Intellectual and emotional integrity to re-examine our worldview takes great courage. And the inclusive history is unsettling. It's just as unsettling as if you discovered some deep hidden secret about your, your own family and its existence. The ground upon which you stand is no longer solid. 
with new unsettling information. Everything is different. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage to hear unfamiliar history, unfamiliar facts, unwanted facts. So February is the month of celebrating St. Valentine, a religious martyr, someone willing to be killed for his beliefs, if this history is accurate. And then somehow the mythology of Roman Valentinus trying to convert Emperor Claudius to Christianity becomes entwined with romantic love. Claudius condemns Valentinus to death for not renouncing his faith and commands soldiers to beat with clubs, then behead Valentinus, who's executed February 14th, 269, outside Rome. But I see courage as the commonality between St. Valentine standing his religious ground and really all notions of love. Love requires courage, persistence, and maintenance. Psychoanalyst and social philosopher Eric Fromm came to mind as I was thinking about love because he wrote in his book, The Art of Loving, to have faith requires courage, the ability to take a risk, the readiness even to accept pain and disappointment, Whoever insists on safety and security as primary conditions of life cannot have faith. Whoever shuts himself off in a system of defense where distance and possession are his means of security makes himself a prisoner. To be loved and to love need courage, the courage to judge certain values as of ultimate concern and to take the jump and to stake everything on these values. All love, romantic, patriotic, maternal, paternal, fraternal, universal, all love requires a commitment, courage, courage. Love demands taking a stand with someone as a partner in life with an ideal, with a value. And with that courage, life expands or shrinks in proportion to your courage to take that stand. I've been thinking about one of our own Unitarian Universalist martyrs. Did you know we had martyrs? We do. Some are nodding. Perhaps the most famous is Michael Servetus. He was an assistant to the chaplain in the Spanish court of King Charles in Spain. We're talking 1500s. And Servetus, as chaplain, happened to witness all the examinations that were behind the um, oh, crusades. That's the word I want. Behind the crusades, he witnessed the prosecution of the mystical and reformist sects called the Alumbrados because they were dangerous. They were trying to be independent of the church. 
He helped study the situation of the Moriscos. Those were Muslims forcibly converted to Christianity. And he was part of the judging of the orthodoxy of Erasmus. So Servetus saw these horrors and these twistings of history and of reality and what is possibly true and not true, and it reshaped him. And his ultimately critical and humanistic approach to the Bible. And he was felt inspired by the divine to write and compose a treatise that became foundation of the Spanish Reformation of Christianity and religious thought. And he ultimately took these stands. I want you to hear these four stands that he took. There is no original sin. He dismisses the Trinity. Jesus is one. All people, regardless of religion, are able to improve. And that grace, change, forgiveness is available to all. And all things are part of God. You know, these are really still very dangerous ideas. How many here, with updated language, such as substituting God for a more inclusive term of unifying universal force and idea, would be willing to take a similar religious stand? It's tempting to ask you to stand up, to set aside fears of exposure, if you believe these four ideas they are still at the core of our being Unitarian Universalist and at the heart of our seven principles. One, if you're willing to stand, no human is born automatically condemned. Two, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does not describe Jesus, a man. Three, all humans have the capacity to learn, grow, and improve. And four, there is unity in the cosmos. In a written debate with Calvin himself, as part of a trial, these four commitments led to authorities in Geneva Servetus had now wandered from Italy following the Reformation, condemning Servetus to death. Calvin actually asked that Servetus be mercifully beheaded. (laughs) The Genevan Council insisted he should be burned at the stake, and he was for beliefs that we still hold dear. So as I am bombarded by news, petitions, clickbait to make my views known and my voice heard, I've begun reviewing in my daily pages of writing what stands would I take or what stands don't I take or what stands do I wish to take. Because I feel overwhelmed by the opportunities and tests, and I've wanted to clarify and revisit my stands. 
I want to be clear that I am standing on some solid ground. To name a few, I have made a promise to each of you, as your called minister of Hope Church, to stand with each of you, whatever that looks like. Not unlike marriage, I agreed to be yoked to you, and that unfolds as we make our way together. I made a vow to my husband, Joe, and to our children, Ben and Alice, We just finished watching The Crown about young Queen Elizabeth and how does my stand with my family take priority or backseat to any other stand to my country or to my morals, to religious ideas? And this is where courage gets messy. This is where small acts of courage accumulate in our lives as we prioritize our values in each moment. It is easier to look at the historical figures and the superheroes that our children are going to look at and see the dramatic acts of physical courage or taking a stand in this moment. But I find, I find it really is in the daily exercise of our muscles of courage, of putting our ideals and beliefs into action that the moral arc of our lives and the moral arc of history unfold. Daily courage is very often small, very small. Courage resides in each simple decision we make of how to spend our time and our resources. Yes, certainly. And no, thank you, can be Courageous statements. Yes, I will write to my elected official. No, I cannot make time for that rally. Yes, I will listen to you and your values. So different from mine. No, I will not pass along hateful memes and ideas. Yes, we can stop and sit down together for a meal. No. I won't miss my child's music recital. My favorite parable about this accumulation of small, courageous acts in the life of a person, as well as the life of an institution, comes from Gil Fransdahl. He's been studying Buddhism since the 1970s and teaching it here in the U.S. So listen in this parable for the threads of both fear, how fear operates, the unwillingness to take risk, and bravery. When I was 13, my family would send me up to the mountains around the monastery to collect edible plants for our evening meal. These foraging trips were the only, only work I enjoyed doing. Otherwise, I tried every trick I could to avoid work on my family's farm. I was still in school, but it held no interest for me. My anger was a welcome barrier to learning anything the teacher was teaching. Occasionally during my foraging trips, I would pass by the monastery while the monks were out sweeping the leaves from the many pathways. 
The first time I saw the monks working, I was mesmerized in watching them going about their work. For many months after, I would stop a while to watch them sweep. They went about their work silently and with an efficiency that seemed effortless. Then one day, a monk walked up to me and asked what I was doing in the mountains. I became defensive. I resented anyone who tried to get to know me. So instead of answering the question, I countered by asking, what was he doing? The monk smiled and answered that he had been told to sweep, and that he was just killing time until he could return to his room for a nap. As I walked home later that day, I thought about his answer. And I was glad that he did not seem any different from me. When I was required to do anything, my heart was never in it. And my attitude was that I was passing time until I could be excused. Taking a nap certainly was preferable. The next time I passed the monastery on one of my foraging trips... Another monk stopped his sweeping and also asked what I was doing. Again, I resented the question. It felt like an intrusion. However, this time I didn't feel as defensive, but again I deflected the question by asking what he was doing. He answered that he was doing extra work in hopes of being assigned to the kitchen, which was warm in the winter and always seemed to have one or two extra sweet rice cakes in the cupboard for the cooks to nibble on. Without saying anything, I nodded and left to continue my foraging. The monk's answer resonated with me since I too like to be warm and eating sweet cakes was one of my favorite activities, second only to sleeping. The next time I passed the monastery, a third monk asked me the same question. This time I was surprised. I wasn't defensive or resentful. However, I deflected the question back again to him. He explained that he was sweeping as a spiritual discipline to help him overcome his anger. Later as I walked back, mountain trail with my bag of plants I felt a kinship with this monk like him I had anger but I was perplexed that he would want to overcome it because I felt my anger protected me and it energized me a week later I was outside the monastery watching the monks sweep yet another monk came up to me When he asked what I was doing, I mumbled something about collecting plants. I doubt he could hear me, for my voice was so faint, but I did muster up some strength to ask him what he was doing. He replied he was beautifying the monastery so that others might be inspired in their work of spiritual transformation. I glanced down at the well-swept paths and realized that one reason I was compelled to watch the monks was that they seemed to be transforming the paths into something that made me feel calm and safe. The next time I stood outside the monastery watching the monks, I was drawn to walk 
over to a fifth monk. And before he could ask me what I was doing, I asked him. He looked at me with kind eyes. After what seemed like a long, soft silence, he explained that he was sweeping to be of service to all who used the monastery. Practicing in this way, he hoped to find ultimate peace. As I left the monastery, I thought that was a really strange answer. I didn't understand what he meant by service and by peace, and I certainly couldn't see how these had any value for me The next time I visited the monastery, it was the last time. I had an unfamiliar feeling as I walked up the mountains just before I reached the monastery. I realized that I was looking forward to seeing the monks again. I felt a warm glow of gladness in anticipation of what I would find. And when I arrived at the monastery, I walked right up to an old monk who seemed absorbed in his sweeping, and I inquired what he was doing. His words washed over me like cleansing water. Me? I'm not doing anything. My self-consciousness was swept away long ago. There is no I that does anything. Now the awakened life moves through my body, my heart, my mind, my mouth. No one sweeps. There are no paths to sweep, and there is no dirt to brush away. I was stunned by his answer. And before I could respond, he handed me the broom and walked away. Life shrinks or expands in relationship to your courage. May it be so. We give away our plate every single Sunday this month. We are giving it to Tulsa Public School MacArthur Elementary. We are a partner in education with them. Give generously.